Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, most vaccinated Canadians want their unvaccinated relatives to steer clear of Christmas dinner. CBC tries to police your language and lawyers take a stand for civil liberties. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. It is Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Great to have you here on The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. It is now 23 days until Christmas, and if you haven't been able to get a Christmas tree yet, like a real Christmas tree, I don't mean like an artificial one, but an actual, I don't know, Douglas fir or something like that Christmas tree, it may be because of climate change. Well, it may be because you haven't tried, if you've tried and you haven't found one, it may be climate change responsible. That's the story that CBC is sharing, that Christmas tree shortages could be annual thanks to industry trends and climate change. Now, this is kind of a, a fun one because if you have an annual shortage of an annual product that you only need once a year, you're kind of screwed and you just can't get a Christmas tree ever again. But they're saying that climate change is responsible. Now, this is, I think, kind of funny because, for starters, everything is something that we can attribute to climate change now. I, I actually did a, a segment a few months back where I just did like a list of things that are caused by climate change. And it was like seasonal depression is caused by climate change. The Christmas tree shortage is caused by climate change. Climate change is caused by climate change. Cold weather is climate change. Warm weather is climate change. Weather that's in between, it's all climate change. It doesn't matter what it is. And now the Christmas tree shortage, it's not a supply chain issue. It's not production issues. It's not late labor shortages. No, no, no. None of that matters. It's not inflate. No, none of these things are real. It's all just climate change that is responsible for it. Now, the irony here is that there's been a lot of a, a push, including, I mean, NASA has a website for children talking about why you should always get a real Christmas tree because it's better for the climate. There's lots of material out there saying that you can reduce climate change by getting a real tree. So I, I have to wonder, well, if real Christmas trees are better for the climate, how is the client and, and people want them so much? How is the demand not uh, keeping the Christmas tree business in full swing? Hey, I'm not a climatologist. I'm just saying that you think that if these things that are in such demand, so much demand that people can't get as many of them as they want, were helping the climate change fight, then the climate change fight would not be winning against tr Christmas trees. And that, but now it's all just going to be terrible because now everyone's got to get their artificial trees and it's going to make it worse. And then in, you know, seven years or whenever Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Prince Charles say the world's ending, no Christmas tree ever again. So whether you have a real or an artificial Christmas tree or you don't and you want to blame climate change, whatever, I hope you are making your way through the Christmas season in a safe, fun, and perhaps healthy way. And I hope this is a genuine point that your family is weathering this because I saw this story and I want to mock it. My instinct is to mock it and I think I am going to mock it a little bit. But there's a, a serious point here which is that according to a new poll, people are very much wanting their unvaccinated relatives to stay away from family dinner. So the majority of Canadians, according to this poll, are unwilling to let an unvaccinated friend or family member into their home. 
And this is a poll that comes from Leger ACS. 75% of the total population vaccinated. Three quarters of Canadians say they know someone who's unvaccinated. Unsurprisingly, if you look at the breakdown geographically, which province has the highest number? You don't even need to tell you the story. Which one? British Columbia, yeah. 70% of British Columbians say no unvaccinated people allowed in their house. The lowest is Alberta, but even then it's relatively high, 58%. And it's interesting because the whole point of this is that if you are a vaccinated person, you should feel confident that you are protected against unvaccinated people and whatever they may bring into your home. And this is the big flaw in this. If you are so confident in the vaccine... I'm not going to say you should be fearless going out into the world. Like, I still wouldn't go around and start licking doorknobs in Wuhan. Then again, I wouldn't do that pre-pandemic <laughs> anyway. But if you are confident in the vaccine, you think the vaccine is effective, why are you so afraid of people around you? And why are you letting this and what vaccination status become the wedge that you use to divide you from other people in the world? And when we talk about vaccine passports and the segregation of society along the lines of vaccination status, there's a serious point there that legally and constitutionally, we should not be separating society based on something like that. Your healthcare choices should be choices, not coerced because the government took away your freedoms. But there's a social aspect of this as well, which is why are we as individuals embracing this culture and attitude that starts otherizing people based on their vaccination status. Now, again, there are reasons. If you have uh, some compromised immune system, you've got people in the house that can't be vaccinated but are very nervous about COVID, these are very legitimate concerns where I would understand you saying, you know what, I I'm sorry, but I'm really not comfortable, in the same way as you wouldn't want the unvaccinated people going to a nursing home, necessarily. But when we're talking about a general, healthy, fully vaccinated family and Uncle Bob's not vaccinated, who cares? Who cares? Like, why are you not confident enough about your vaccination status? We know that even when breakthrough cases do happen, the symptoms for vaccinated people are a lot more mild. We know that there are some variants like Omicron that are supposedly, it seems like the early data are saying, are not even giving many severe symptoms at all. It's just a very mild, albeit quickly spreading variant. So if you if you buy that, and, and even the WHO is kind of hedging it here, there was a line from one spokesperson saying, well, hope is not science. Well, well, right now, I don't even think science is science, certainly not in the last two years. So hope may not be science, but hope seems about as reliable as most of the other proclamations from public health officials. So you might as well let hope guide you because science certainly hasn't been doing you any favors in uh, some of the public health proclamations. And again, I'm not saying I'm not denouncing science. I'm denouncing the politicized interpretations of science that were to just accept at face value, even when they're proven to be wrong time and time again. But if you believe in vaccination and you believe that your vaccine protects you, perhaps you cannot use that as a divider with your family. Because when you start to force people to the margins and fringes of society, it never ends well. It never ends well. When you start to tell people that they're not welcome, that you're no longer going to be friends with them, you're no longer... I I've heard people that have legitimately lost friendships because they're unvaccinated. They've had friends say, you know what, I... I don't want to talk to you anymore. And that's sad. 
That is very sad. I mean, we saw glimpses of this in the Trump era where people were allowing whether someone voted for Trump to be the determining factor and whether they would get to be friends and whether they would be invited to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. And I thought that was ridiculous. And, and there, it was common enough, but it was not as widespread. On the vaccination thing, entirely different. This is an entirely normal event now for people to say to a family member or a friend, uh, sorry, you're unvaccinated, not in my life anymore. Or you're in my life, but only remotely. We're relegated to a life of Zoom calls because I never want to be in the same room with you. And again, when you have this pandemic, which is forcing people to elevate their levels of fear, and there was a time for that, but the whole point is, and this is what I said the other day about Omicron, we can never allow anyone to plunge us back into February, March, 2020 which is what a lot of these people are trying to do with Omicron. They're trying to say, we don't know anything. It's like it's a blank slate. We're starting from zero. We don't know what we're dealing with. And, and as a result, they're justifying very strict and stringent measures and using as justification for that the idea that, well, we don't know what we're dealing with, so we need to go to the nth degree and then a couple of degrees beyond that. I don't know what you find a couple of degrees beyond nth, but that's where they're going. Because what they're saying is that we don't know. We don't know. And then once we get over the curve of the Omicron variant, the next one will come along. I think it's Pi that's right after. So the Pi variant, unless they skip over the Pi variant like they did the Xi variant. But I think the Pi variant is probably safe. So once the next, once we get over the, uh, once we flatten the curve of Omicron and it's time for the Pi variant, all of a sudden it's, well, we, we don't know what we're dealing with, so we've got to go back to lockdowns. We've got to go back to travel restrictions. And a lot of the things, the very hard-fought wins for reopening and getting back to normal start to be eroded. Just one, one notable example of this is travel restrictions. So I've been one of the loudest voices in Canada, and that's not to toot my own horn. It's just to say that very few people uh, were, especially in the earlier days, speaking up about this, calling for an erosion of a lot of the travel measures that were not rooted in science, that were just rooted in theatrics, but were nonetheless the backbone of the Canadian government's COVID response. Things like hotel quarantine, which even the government's own expert panel said is not doing anything good. Things like the pre-arrival PCR testing, which the government is still uh, buying as something that it needs to do. Now, they've eased the measures a little bit and said, well, if you're leaving the country for 72 hours, you don't need to get a test to come back in. But but that's it. So you're going to have people just like racing, just racing across the, uh, the border to Abbotsford, BC or Sarnia just because they have to get back in time for the 72-hour window uh, and not have to do a, a PCR test, many of which cost like 250 US dollars. So there's a whole bunch of crap if I can say this, that is governing how we travel and how we enter our own country. And we've just been getting past a lot of that. The U.S. border is now open to Canadians. You don't need to quarantine if you're vaccinated. There are people moving freely again. And then, of course, Omicron comes. The government throws up some travel restrictions. But none of it really matters. Again, they, put, they try to put a net over a few African countries. And then we get it from Nigeria, which wasn't one of them. And then we find out that the Netherlands actually had the Omicron variant before South Africa and Botswana. Did. Like So none of it matters. As I said, you're always, always, always going to be playing catch up with travel restrictions. And now we have the government putting in yet another barrier to testing. So now when you enter the country, it used to be Canadian or traveler, doesn't matter. If you entered Canada 
by air and you were fully vaccinated, you would have to do that PCR test before you arrived. And then you'd go and a couple of people at the airport would be randomly selected for an additional test. But otherwise, you just leave. Now, everyone who lands needs to do a PCR test. And then you need to go to quarantine or isolate. The wording is not quite clear yet. Well, you await the results. Now, I don't know what the backlog is. I don't know if it's one, two, three days. But all of a sudden, if you're now a traveler and you say, oh, yeah, I want to go to Vancouver on vacation, you're going to be sitting in your hotel room, technically not allowed to leave until that PCR test comes back. And again, I don't know what their backlog is. I do know that Switch Health is a company that has managed to secure the monopoly on this border testing, despite the fact that the company just didn't exist two years ago. And all of a sudden, you will now have to go through this process again of getting a PCR test and waiting for that result. So we've started to now add back a lot of the measures that we already took away. Now, so far, there's no hotel quarantine. I, I'm holding my breath, but at the same time, I'm not optimistic that some version of some measure like that couldn't come back if the government is so panicked about this. Now, interestingly enough, I mentioned Switch Health. So I shared my horror story with Switch Health a couple of months back. Or no, it just feels like a couple of months. Uh, yeah, a few weeks in COVID times feels like a few months of normal time. It was the beginning of November. I was in Austria and I did a one of those do-it-yourself RT lamp tests, which is like a, a PCR, except it's not in a lab, but the Canadian government accepts it at the border. And I did this because I needed to, to get home from Europe. And I got a false positive as evidenced by the fact that I did two rapid tests and a PCR and they were all negative after. And I wrote about this and I had some very unkind words about Switch Health and about the test. And interestingly enough, this week I got a, proactively, I never reached out to them from Switch Health, an offer of a refund on the test and compensation for to reimburse me for the local test that I had to buy in Austria, which I think was like a hundred and it was like $114 or whatever it was. And I was like, yeah, okay, they're off. So $150 for the test plus tax and then a $114 some odd dollars for the uh, test that I had to get in Austria. So uh, they, they've, they've offered me and they, they didn't make it contingent on my silence. They didn't say like, oh, you need to retract anything you've said. They just said, uh, you know, we understand you had some issues. Uh, we're offering you a refund. So at least something works. I've kind of become accustomed to the idea that nothing is working in society now. So uh, <laughs> that's why I didn't even bother reaching out to them because I just didn't have the energy or time to deal with navigating the bureaucracy of a company that has a business model that I, I think needs to be looked at. That's all I'll say on that. But the point is, is that all of the progress we feel like we've made is getting thrown back at us in the form of roadblocks. And I'm going to be talking a little later on in the show with D. Jared Brown, a lawyer who's very keenly aware of the attacks on civil liberties, and he's part of a movement of lawyers specifically trying to return to the old normal. But it seems like for every one step forward you take, you're also taking two steps back. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. And today we're going to talk about all the words that we think you are an ableist, sexist, racist, misogynist for saying. Oh, wait, sorry. What's that? Oh, no, sorry. This is now oh, this is True North, not CBC. Okay. 
Never mind. No, I'm not going to tell you how to speak. I'm not going to police your language. I'm not going to tell you you're a dirty, stinking, racist, misogynistic, transphobic, ableist, homophobe, classist, first worldist. Uh, no, that that's just what CBC does. This I, I know it's been around for a couple of days now, but I, I had to get my uh, you know few swings at the pinata here because this it, it's almost like at first when I saw it, I thought some CBC intern accidentally tweeted from the CBC account instead of their own account because they tweeted like this little stupid like word cloud and all the words that you're not supposed to use that was from the uh, I first saw it on, on the CBC Ottawa account that you can see on the screen there and then know that lo and behold this is actually a CBC story telling you the words and phrases you may want to think twice about using. So they're, they're saying you may want to think about it. It's like the pa vaccine passports. They're making you think you have a choice, but when you read the rest of it, you realize that, uh, you, you know, by the end of the article, you're not supposed to be talking about it. Now, you can see what the words are. Savage, ghetto, gypped, blackmail, powwow, crippled, blind spot, first world problem, lame, spirit animal, grandfathered in, tone deaf, black sheep, blind-sided, tribe spooky, savage brainstorm to sell someone down the river. I may have repeated a couple, but you get the gist there. Now, I've said them all, so it's I've done like the anti-George Carlin thing of just the, the words you can't say on a podcast, I've all said. But <laughs> I want to talk about these. Some of them are obvious. Like, gypped is one that a lot of people know by now is offensive to a particular ethnic group. Uh, to have a powwow, again, I've heard challenged before. But some of these are absolutely insane. I think the craziest is brainstorm. Now, if you look at the rationale given by a disability advocate here, uh, a brainstorm could be insensitive to those who have brain injuries or are neurodiverse, and it could effectuate stigma about disorders like epilepsy for people. So I, I knew an epileptic person once, and when they had a seizure, I didn't think, huh? She's having a brainstorm. So people do not associate the word brainstorm with seizure. They don't associate brainstorm with anything but a storm of ideas going around in your brain, which it sounds like the people of CBC have never actually had in their brain. So that way it may be why the word is foreign to them. But this is, I, I once heard about this in like the heyday of PC language policing, which was the early 90s when this was becoming a big thing. I heard a story. There was some office that had decided it would replace brainstorming in its corporate strategy meetings with thought showers, which just sounds bizarre and thankfully never caught on. And a blind spot as well. You know, ha heaven forbid you say that you can't see something because it's in your blind spot. People may associate that with blindness, which is the inability to see. So that, yeah, I can see how that one would uh, be something you wouldn't want to do. What else are you not allowed to use? Tone deaf, because you can't hear tone. So people might confuse that with the inability to hear. Okay, fair enough. And what else do we have on the list here? I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and you're not supposed to use tribe. Now, what they fail to realize in policing the word tribe is that tribe was a word before it was a term used specifically for indigenous people. So there can be a tribal mentality. We got to just cancel Survivor. That's the whole thing. Like this is all leading to Jeff Probes being canceled because he has he presides over tribal councils. So that's like a cultural appropriation thing going on there. But if you were to say, ah, oh, yes, my tribe, or it's a tribal attitude, apparently that is no longer allowed and sold down the river. 
Yeah, that's a negative connotation. Harkens back, they say, to a time when enslaved African people would literally be sold down the Mississippi River for profit, seen as chattel objects that could be used or disposed of at the whims of their slave owners. And this one I find hilarious. Spooky. So if something is spooky, well, that's not allowed because it's actually an anti-black slur from when white soldiers began calling fellow black soldiers spooks during World War II. What they're saying here, the serious aspect of this, is that intent does not matter. If someone can draw a line between something they don't like and, and something historically wrong, it doesn't matter whether no sensible thinking person would see that line it exists and everyone has to shy away from it. The problem is, is that if you allow people to seed language, it is never innocuous and it's never benign. And I, I've had to stress this point because a lot of people would say, well, no big deal. If it makes one or two people feel better for you to not use this word or that word, then what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that language matters. Language matters and the words we use matter. And more, ability, more importantly, the ability to use language the ability to just freely choose our words and not have to censor everything and stack it up against whatever someone else might claim is a microaggression. This is a phenomenon that matters. One, one notable example of this, and a part of me doesn't even want to bring it up, but I, I will. Not because I think this is the word you should use, but because it's an example of how intent has been proven to be irrelevant. The word niggardly, which has no etymological connection at all, to anything racial, means cheap and stingy. But most people do not know that word, so if you were to use that word, you'd probably be uh, sent to the office, uh, the principal's office, you'd probably be summoned to HR, you'd probably be canceled, you might even have your post taken down by big tech, whatever. And there was a, a big thing, I think it was in the New York Times a while ago, where they ran like this massive multi-part series about whether they could or should still use this word. And it was actually like a big thing where they had points and counterpoints and they had black people on both sides and they had linguists on both sides. And there was a, a certain concession that I think was made there, which is, okay, could you defend the use of that word? Yes. But should you? Is it the hill to die on? No. The difference between that word and these is that that word is problematic to a lot of people because when they hear it, they think of something else. The list of words that CBC is trying to cancel, no one would hear and think there's anything wrong with, with the exception of a couple. They, they throw a couple in there that I think are fairly agreeable uh, to, to cancel or to at least refrain from using, like gypped is the notable one. But to sell down the river, to say something spooky, even to say something's grandfathered in. Now, I've learned the history of that. I know it has to do with slavery, but that is not what that term means. And I find it interesting, for all the talk we hear about reclaiming language, this was the thrust behind, you may remember, Slut Walk a few years ago. A bunch of feminist activists were saying, you know what, we're not going to let the word slut be used in a derisive way about women. We're going to reclaim it. We're going to proudly march as sluts. And I think a lot of people mocked that. But the, the point that I took away from that was, okay, so we're saying that we are not going to allow other people to change what language means. And we are going to reclaim a word if we don't like it. So why are we not reclaiming these words to use the left's language? Why are we allowing these words to be taken away? And again, most people, the good news is most people saw the CBC story and just mocked it and just rolled their eyes at it as I think they should have. But the problem with doing that is that there are some 
schools that are putting up posters that are saying these are the words you can't use. There are going to be some offices that are start uh, going to start putting out guidelines saying these are words you can't use. And this was the whole thing of the PC craze in the 90s. Most people just laughed at this and thought it was all insane and absurd, which it was. The notable example that stands out from the era was, I forget the town, I think it might have been San Francisco, where they changed manholes to maintenance covers or maintenance holes or something like that. Because And no one was ever offended. No one could point to a, a woman being offended because, I mean, w- women don't want to be known as, you know, sewage covers. Like, uh, if you called it a woman hole, they wouldn't like it. So a man hole, I don't think, is offensive to women. Like, th- like this is an area where I think women are probably happy being excluded from the discourse. But no, someone said, ah, someone might be offended by this, so we- we've got to change it. You look at Atlantic Canada, there was a-, a craze in the late 90s, early 2000s about the term fisherman and whether fisherman was allowed. Because, oh, well, it's not gender inclusive. And CBC ran, it was like a 2,000 word letter from from the editor, not a letter to the editor, a letter from the editor about the debates and the challenges and why they were going to call themselves fishers. The Globe and Mail, to its credit, said, uh, you know, we actually talked to women fishermen and they said they liked being called fishermen. It was the women fishermen, the ones actually affected by this were saying, no, don't, we're, we're, we're fishermen. That, that's who we are. So all of the time with these language battles, you get a couple of activists like in the CBC article, like this disability rights activist. But but these are people from the grievance industry whose job is to find fault in anything and everything. So do not cede your language. That's the one takeaway here. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show talking about going back to the old normal with lawyer D. Jared Brown. That's up next. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. If you haven't detected it, there's been a bit of a civil liberties theme on this show for the last, oh, I don't know, maybe 18, 19 months. Part of it's become, part of it has been because that has been the biggest issue facing not just Canadians in in provinces all across this country, but even people around the world. We've covered a lot of the court cases that have been taken up against some of these uh, very significant and severe measures we've seen. Obviously, there have been some wins, but a lot of losses on that. But I think we all agree it's probably going to be a years-long process as a lot of these challenges work their way up through all the various courts and perhaps may have a favorable outcome at the Supreme Court. Who knows? Well, a number of lawyers from all across this country have signed a declaration acknowledging that civil liberties are under what the declaration says is unprecedented attack. This is the Free North Declaration, founded by our friend Bruce Party, who's been on the show on a number of occasions. And one of the signatories is D. Jared Brown, a lawyer with Brown Law in Toronto, also a bencher with the Law Society of Ontario. He joins me now. Jared, good to have you back on. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I, this has just taken off like wildfire. I mean, all sorts of lawyers and not just the usual suspects that we hear in the media on, on civil liberties, but people with family law practices, real estate practices. There does seem to be a, a significant contingent of the legal community that's not happy with what's happening right now. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. There's, there's a growing uh, opposition to, to, the, to the new normal, if you will. Um, <clears throat> I think that people are, uh, everybody's feeling it. It's taken some people longer than others to, to sense that change, what, what the new normal looks like and to, to develop the, you know, the opposition to it, if you will. 
Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot more people in this space now, especially in the legal world than there were uh, 18 months ago. Um, and certainly it, uh, putting some attention on it uh, uh, from some of its opponents uh, has certainly uh, uh, galvanized uh, some of the lawyers to, to take a look at what the Free North Declaration is all about and to decide whether or not they want to, uh, to affirm their belief in that, in that proposition. I know at the bottom of it, there's an option that allows people to sign it anonymously if they'd like. And the petition says, or the declaration rather says, if they fear negative repercussions from disclosing their name publicly. Now, I know you've never shied away from putting your name to what you think. Neither has Bruce Party, Lisa Bildy, all of these folks that have been involved in this. But, but for a lot of lawyers, the idea of standing up for civil liberties, there could be negative repercussions, or at least they fear there could be. Why is that? Oh, absolutely. And it's part of the new normal. Uh, in the before times, uh, you were considered a champion of the of, of the bar and a hero uh, uh, of the law if you were to champion human rights and basic civil rights. Well, in the new normal, that's not the case at all. It depends on which rights and freedoms that you are, are uh, uh, supporting or defending. And uh, one need look no further than the opposition to the Free North Declaration, which is building, uh, uh, to see why people are legitimately afraid. Uh, to stand up, to, to put their, their names to things like the Free North Declaration. I mean, by way of example, uh, I, I just read a piece calling for uh, myself and, and some of my colleagues who are governors at the Law Society of Ontario to somehow be reprimanded or to have our, our elected positions on that board somehow put in jeopardy because we decided to affirm our belief in fundamental human rights, fundamental charter rights and freedoms. Um, there's also another individual, who, a lawyer, who was calling for the any articles that publish the Free North Declaration uncritically, uh, that those should be censored, those articles should be pulled down. I mean, it's the typical mob reaction uh, that typically comes from the left on these things, and it's been mobilized, and it's been mobilized quickly. But when you talk to your legal colleagues that are seeing a lot of concerns here, are they all politically conservative? Because it used to be a lot of the biggest civil libertarians came from the left. No, I, absolutely. This is the, in the new normal, if you will. Uh, the, the coalitions and alliances are not the ones of old. And so we've got I, you've got traditional sort of uh, socialist lefties who, who are who recognize that there are some fundamental rights and freedoms, freedom of speech, things like that, that they actually care about, that they that matter to them. And then there's also uh, liberals, small L liberals, classical liberals and then conservatives. And then, of course, there's the libertarians themselves. There is an alliance of people who, who recognize that society, our society was organized on the basis of some pretty good ideas, uh, you know, the rights and freedoms of individuals, uh, uh, for instance, and they don't like seeing how this new normal under, under the COVID era has, has pushed those aside. And, and so if you value uh, individual rights and freedoms on any level, then, then you will find a home uh, amongst this this new coalition, if you will, of, uh, from across the political spectrum. Now, I know it's it's obviously not something that judges would sign and, and could sign, nor do I want judges that are, are signing uh, what are political or political adjacent declarations, but I, I would certainly like them to be taking heed of this current and, and a lot of the legal arguments that have been put forward in, in favor of that. And I, I know, as I, I said in the preamble there, there are going to be a lot of cases that I, I think are going to be litigated for years into the future. But uh, when it's coming down to it, the challenges that have been going towards courts uh, fighting for civil liberties, courts seem to be generally taking a very, very broad view and, and giving government a lot of latitude. 
let, let's be clear. I mean, uh, judges and those that sit on administrative tribunals, they're just members of society like you and I. Uh, uh, they, they live within the same uh, society that we live in. They get their media and information from the same sources as us. And they're scared. They're, they're, they are scared. Uh, they, uh, they, I, I've said to people that there is a mania that has descended upon uh, society and, and judges and, and tribunal uh, members are not immune from that mania. And so absolutely, uh, uh, they, um, they, there has been no bold decision-making, if you will, uh, uh, on the side of, of fundamental rights and freedoms on anything COVID-related or the public health response to it. And I'm, I'm not surprised. And, and I'm not surprised only because, like I said, the, the mania it does not stop at the, the, the steps of the courthouse. Um, it, it's at all levels of society. And, and so in the midst of, in the grips of something that you think is this existential threat to the entirety of society, then maybe you're going to look over uh, um, some rights and freedoms getting stomped upon by, by the government. Um, so yeah, it's that uh, I'm not surprised. I've told uh, anybody who wants to know that I think the only solution to these problems are going to be political. I do not believe that you'll find uh, any refuge in the court system or the tribunal system on anything uh, COVID public health related. I fear you're right about that. One point that the declaration makes, which I think is interesting about the process aspect of, of courts, is that uh, one example, which I hadn't actually come across, uh, come across that unvaccinated people are being denied uh, the participation in juries. Now, some people who don't like doing jury duty might say, okay, that's great. You know, it gets me out of it. But, but that actually is, in a way, something that would bias a jury if you're excluding a segment of the population. So, so even just the way that courts are operating as institutions, forgetting about the decisions that judges are being made are, are not immune from a lot of these things that are being challenged in courts. Well, that example that you just mentioned about juries was, a, was a, what looked like a simple and minor decision by, by a single judge, I believe it was out West in BC, saying that they didn't want to convene a jury pool in, in, during COVID times. Uh, at that point, I think it was in the spring when vaccinations were a relatively new thing. And we didn't know much about them in terms of their efficacy, long-term or otherwise, or about transmissibility, things like that. And so that, that a judge made a decision he was going to exclude the non-vaccinated. And now my understanding is that, that that decision is now being rolled out everywhere. And what you're effectively doing uh, is you're denying uh, an accused in, in, in a jury trial or, or, or the defendant, if you will, in a civil trial, uh, the jury of their peers. And, and uh, I think that's something we need to take seriously. Uh, we need to understand how, what the implications may be. I mean, there, it is conceivable that at some point a jury may be deciding issues related to uh, vaccination status, possibly. Uh, and, and if you're going to exclude a, a, what, I don't know what the size of the population is, but a, a cohort, if you will, of the population from sitting on a jury, you, you're really uh, meddling amongst some fundamental uh, tenets of Western judicial systems. Yeah, and when you look at a lot of these, and again, I'm not going to just go through and, and give the entire list of civil liberties violations because, well, I think you have things to do this afternoon, as do I. But there is a, a point at which if you don't focus on the big picture and realize that they are under attack, the little stuff doesn't really matter anymore. Like, I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, it was almost a novelty when you'd see these little stories about, oh, you know, this kid was given a fine for playing basketball in a park, and these were very manageable, and, you know, at, at a certain point, it became dozens, and then it became hundreds, and now you've got millions, tens of millions of dollars of fines that have been leveled against churches, individuals, uh, people that have uh, just gone to work without being, like, it's just, the, it's endless now, and at a certain point, how do you chip away at this? 
Well, it, it's been incremental, but there are some who saw early on that this was this was incredible. I mean, this is this is absolutely amazing that the government would think that it could put uh, uh, the entire society under house arrest, that it could shut down the economy, that the economy is a switch that they can play with and turn on and off. Some of us thought, no, 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 that's that's not how society is organized. Um, that you know, rights and freedoms are not privileges granted by government, but they are they are something we are born with, something that comes from a higher source, if you will. Um, and, and for the government to then start treating our rights and freedoms as if they are privileges, which is what they've done, um, to some of us, we knew right away where this was going. Of course, we were called the conspiracy theorists early on, but the conspiracy theories 18 months later are looking uh, pretty credible at this point. And so what's happened, though, is from that initial shock that some of us saw, there's been this incremental push. And, and you know, basically what's happened is you find yourself uh, at a battle line 18 months later that is further back from where you started without realizing the amount of ground that you've been pushed. Um, and, and so, like I said, people are beginning to realize those who may not have, have been as shocked as someone like I was back in March 2020 that the government thought it had this right, uh, uh, they're, they're there now. They now see that the, the, the forward position that they were in 18 months ago is miles off in the distance. And we, as I call it, the new normal is a very different place. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it, because when this was all just about two weeks to flatten the curve, people were willing to put up with a lot for two weeks. And, and if government had made the appeal to civic duty and, and said, we're asking you to do X, Y, Z, it would have been a lot different. But the problem is, and you're right, not that many people spoke out against this at the point, even when we didn't know what COVID was, we didn't know how transmissible it was, we didn't know what we were dealing with. I remember when people were wiping down doorknobs before going into buildings. And, and stuff like that, or even their their own home. But that two-week license that we gave the government got extended. It got extended two weeks longer, and then in months. And now we are about to enter the third year of COVID. And, and you are right that the people that kind of gave the benefit of the doubt to government are, are the ones now that, you know, well, the joke's on them. Well, public health is traditionally, and if you talk to public health experts, and I have because I had to cross-examine some at, at, at trials, and I've had to dive into peer-reviewed literature on this stuff in the context of my court proceedings. But uh, if you talk to them, traditionally public health is something where you avoid coercion. In other words, you try and enlist the populace and you give them information and equip them so that they voluntarily want to, in this case, fight COVID. And so for instance, their initial two weeks to flatten the curve, it, it, it came across to many as a voluntary suggestion. You know, this is the thing to do. And so I think on that basis, you could justify it, like give everyone the information, let them make their decision. If they're gonna stay home, shutter their business, whatever it is, but that's not what happened. Laws were passed, kids were sent home from school. They were, it was, it was backed up by the power of the state and, and it was coerced. Now we, you know, we're all in this together was the mantra at that time, but the reality is no, if you weren't in it, you were gonna find out very quickly from, from the, uh, from the police, from our from our health authorities, and from the courts, and that that's traditionally not what public health has been, and we've completely annihilated that conception of public health, and I think much to the detriment of the institution that it is. So let's let's go back to the declaration here for a moment. This is obviously a, a declaration by lawyers. Who's the target audience? Are you trying to convince other lawyers, or is it a message to society itself? It's the society itself. I mean, the the the. the uh, a joint letter is something is not something new. I mean, traditionally, they come from the left. Traditionally, you'll see uh, academics, legal scholars on the left will sign these joint petitions. 
Typically, they're criticizing conservative governments and the things that conservative governments have tried to do. You know, I'm thinking right now of, of, of the Ford government when it tried to restrict the size of the Toronto City Council. We saw a big joint letter signed by a bunch of, of lawyers and law profs saying this is a bad thing. Um, this is essentially in that vein. It's it's a it's a bunch of lawyers who are who and, and legal types as well as among society at large who say we don't like this. There, there's certain principles that, that, that we hold dear and, and they're set out in the declaration. And, and uh, you know, you're not alone if you share these, these ideas, these notions, or just this discomfort with where we are now 18 months later. So no, it, it's for society at large to, I guess, to provide some comfort because you're not seeing any of this stuff in mainstream media. No. You know, the corporate media basically has put the cone of silence on, on what I call the science around COVID. The science around COVID is not what you're getting on your nightly news at 6 p.m., unfortunately. And that's why we are where we are. So it's about getting a message out. It's about showing people that there are numbers that, that, that share your opinions and your feelings. And then obviously having lawyers involved tells you, guess what? You're not insane. This stuff is not normal in the law. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very valid point because for a lot of people, I mean, going back to Doug Ford calling those protesting lockdowns a bunch of yahoos some time ago and, and similar rhetoric about, oh, just these, you know, absolute lunatics that are out protesting against vaccine mandates. It is good to see here's an educated, regulated profession full of thousands of people uh, of which a large chunk are saying, ah, you know what, we're not comfortable with this, including, as I pointed out, a lot of fully vaccinated people who, like myself, can be very pro-vaccination and anti mandate Mandate. And that in and of itself is a position that's just completely absent from the mainstream media discourse. I, I mean, people need to understand that as a lawyer, I go to court, I go before the Human Rights Tribunal, I go before all manner of, of sort of adjudicative bodies. And I'm having to give advice to clients right now that says this, in the before times, this is the way it would have been. But we're now in the mania times, the new normal, and I can't give you an assurance on the outcome on this case that I would have been able to give you 19 months ago and said, no way in hell. Can they do what they're doing? Now I'm sitting there in a situation where I'm saying, hmm, who knows? Who knows in the new normal? And, and, and that's what people need to understand is that as lawyers, and, and this on, looking at the vaccine debate, for instance, the mandatory vax debate, uh, you know, I represent employers, I represent uh, individuals as well. And on both sides, my, the opinion that I have to give is I'm not sure if this would be enforceable at the end of the day. In the old times, it should not be. It would never have been. To have to disclose your private health status to your employer uh, uh, to, to submit to a medical treatment in order to continue employment. But in the new normal, you know, with the mania that I, that I say is out there uh, and what I've seen from the courts, um, you know, it, it, like I said, I think the only solution is going to be political to these things. And, and so that's why the declaration is important that it's signed by lawyers and has the backing of lawyers, because people need to understand, even we as lawyers are uncomfortable with this. Well, trying to return to the old normal has uh, been an uphill battle, but that doesn't mean it is not an important one. The Free North Declaration, uh, one significant weapon in that fight. Jared Brown, D. Jared Brown, lawyer with Brown Law in Toronto, one of the signatories, also a bencher with the Law Society of Ontario. Uh, thanks so much, Jared. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. As has been the running joke on the show, we tend to talk about these issues and they depress me greatly, but I actually felt kind of hopeful there. I, I felt kind of hopeful because a lot of the time, and I don't know if any of you feel this way, I feel somewhat alone in this fight. And I don't mean that I, I don't hear all the time from those of you listening in the show who agree, and in some cases disagree, but do it in a, a civil and, and respectful way. But in society itself, 
in society itself, there are lots of different groups where I could go, and if I were to mention what I think is a completely uncontroversial point, like, hey, I don't think you should be fired for not being vaccinated, it's as though you had said something radical. Because that is radical in today's society. And D uh, Jared kept going back to the new normal, the new normal. And I, I'm uncomfortable with that because I don't want to recognize that it is, in fact, the new normal. I don't want to recognize that all of these things that I deplore, coercion, force, compromising liberty, have become normalized and accepted in society. But you know what? I'm never going to give up the fight to bring that back. So glad Jared is as dedicated as I am, more so within his profession, of course, at uh, getting rid of the new normal and going back to the way things were. Free society via the Free North and the Free North Declaration. That is at freenorthdeclaration.ca. That does it for us for today. We've got to wrap things up there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show. We'll be back soon with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.